Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Alex, I'm curious. June is a year and three quarters now. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Nice memory. Little little baby June's not so little anymore. She's she's toddler June now. She's pretty feisty. Yeah. Do you feel like you've gotten to the stage where you start? I think it happens to every parent. It's like where you start to sort of imagine her future, not not necessarily like your future together, but like the things she might become. A little bit. Actually, just today, hiking out from the crag with my wife, we were talking about the the person that baby June will potentially grow into, you know, or just what, what we hope to see from her life. And it's just hard to imagine the world that she'll, she'll grow up in. I mean, actually, I think that because it's so hard to predict the future, it's hard to know what she'll actually live through in her lifetime. Mm-hmm. But I think the the thing that we're certain of is that we want her to feel comfortable with anything and to feel confident taking on challenges. I mean, I think my biggest goal as a parent is to make sure that she grows up unafraid of things. Mm -hmm. You know, I just don't want her to have weird phobias like, oh, I never go out in the dark because it's so scary. And you're like, what? Why? You know, like, why have parts of your life closed off because you're afraid? Yeah. You know, it's like, I want her to grow up feeling, feeling free to pursue whatever passions she, she has. We both have kids, right? And we're incredibly lucky to be in, in that spot where we get to have hopes like that, right? You know, that, that we sort of believe that there's like this huge world and our kids, like if we give them the right tools, they're gonna, they're gonna be, go, be able to go kick ass. And that's pretty incredible. There are places in this world where little girls, they might have to hide their passion for sports or be pushed into a very narrow version of what it means to be a woman. And then that's even dictated by the government. That's also a reality right now here at home where women and men are doing their best to support women's rights, right? Historically, we're also not that far away from a different period in time when some politicians would openly say that a woman's role is in the home. I imagine that no matter what direction June heads in, you'd hope she'd be brave and willing to speak up if something was wrong. I mean, for that matter, you know, hope slash wish that I'd be brave and willing to speak up if something is wrong. Because I mean, when you think about Mm -hmm. human rights and and women's rights and and sort of oppressive governments, you're always kind of left wondering, should I personally be doing more about these kinds of things? Or could I be doing more? You know, it's, it's hard to say. I do realize that this is a podcast about climbing. And I think today we have a pretty incredible story interview with somebody who's been forced to really bring these two topics together. Who are we talking to today, Alex? Today we're talking to pro climber and human rights activist Nassim Eshki, um, who actually met a very long time ago in Turkey, though at the time I didn't honestly know enough about about human rights in Iran or, or her. You know, I just met her as a climber in Turkey. Um, but since then, she has become a professional climber, uh, put up roots all around Europe, and she's freaking, she's pretty good. But that's not why we're talking to her today. Last year, Iranians poured into the streets to protest their government after uh, the young woman, Masa Amini, died in police custody after being detained for not wearing a headscarf. Uh, Nassim was abroad at the time, and 
at that stage, because she had been outspoken against the regime, returning home would mean certain arrest. And faced with the choice of backing down in order to possibly return home or living a life in asylum and speaking out, Nassim doubled down and began using her voice, platform, and climbing to advocate for women's and human rights. It was a pretty brave choice on her part to double down in the wake of the protests and try to do what she saw as, as the right thing. Yeah. You know, basically to, to speak up from a place where she was at least physically safe and able to speak up in that way. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzcahal. This is Climbing Gold. When I was a child, I was an an active girl, which liked to to do exercises, like kind of hyperactive. And I started to do several sports, of course, at the school, also outside the school. I was a kickboxer for 15 years. And I also did a lot of um, athletic sports, like heptathletes. Um, also swimming, all these things. I studied also sports science at the university, so I was very much engaged with the sport, and that was uh, the love of my life, or like just, just be able to spend my energy. And what were the what were the expectations for women in sport in Iran? Like, is is it normal to be such a such a sporting woman in Iran? It's normal to do a little bit in the spare time, for example, on the summer time for the school. Uh, Sometimes, you know, the parents, they let their children to go do some sport, especially when they are much younger. And after some time, the expectation is just the girls have to spend their spare time in learning the, I don't know, the activities which is more useful for caring of a husband in during the future life. So the expectation is not to do any sports anyway. So also in my life, from the beginning, was always a fight. Uh, argue with the family at school uh, that I wanted to do more sports and they didn't want me to do. But then I was escaping from the lessons at the school, going to do my kickboxing. So it was a, always a constant battle until when I was at university or when I found um, a job to have some little bit of income, then I could be more independent. So it's always going in this direction. You mentioned the the social pressure, sort of like the Iranian cultural view around women with exercising, but what did your family think about it? I mean, you say that there was constant tension, but was your family supportive of you being sort of an, an elite kickboxer, you know, becoming a climber, like any of... Any of that? No, uh, never. I never had the support from the family. I just had so much energy and I felt I want to do the sport. And as a very young girl or, you know, like the, a group of friends which you meet in the sport, you feel more comfortable with them. So I wanted to spend more time with them. So, no, they never supported and they tried to stop me of going. And I was going... Um, hidden like instead of the hours of the school sometimes i was going to to do the sport hmm. so anyway they 
Hafez expected me to have a high rank at the school, and I had it. So if my school rank was lower, then it would make a bigger problem. I was exactly the same way with climbing, <laughs> with like, oh, spending too much time climbing, not doing schoolwork, but, uh, but my school ranking was high enough, so nobody's complaining. So you're just like, oh, I'll just spend my time climbing as long as school is still okay. And then eventually I just left university to go climb full time. Yeah. But it's the same, uh, it's the, the social expectation. It's like, as long as you're, you're meeting the required minimum, you know, it's like, as long as you're doing okay, then nobody complains. <laughs> you're just like, oh, I can just spend my time climbing. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. But also, if our score um, at the school is higher, it is still is not an okay thing to go to, to do any sport. But uh, what I was trying it was that they don't come down. My score doesn't come down. So they will not be suspicious which what I'm so to ask what I'm doing really. But to go to to my kickboxing courses, it was um 80% of the time was a hidden activity. So it was the, um it was not accepted even if I had a higher score. Quick aside here, on a scale of one to ten, how interested would you ever be in trying out kickboxing? I was going to say a zero, but I mean, I guess a one or a two, maybe I, I would try, you know, see if it's fun. But no, I don't, <laughs> I don't really like to hurt other people. I don't like to get hurt. I'm like, I, I can't really see the appeal of kicking somebody in the head. So I do think there is something so unique, so incredible about this young girl whose parents aren't pushing her towards this sport. Um, she finds kickboxing versus something like soccer, say, or or running or track, right? Well, that's when you know that Nassim was really anti-authority or like sort of contrarian <laughs> when, when as a child, as a, as a young woman in a society that doesn't encourage women's sports, she's like, I want to get into kickboxing. So I think the other thing that's worth pointing out is that Nassim is trying to do this really from a young age at a super high level. Like she's not sneaking out to do, uh, you know, one after school karate class a week. She's trying to excel and really quickly decides that she has the potential to reach the highest level of this sport on a national level and potentially an international level. And that takes a lot of time. It's hard to imagine hiding that from your family. Was it, so how did you find climbing from kickboxing? So I went on and on and on. Until uh, at the university, we were doing a hike at, um, like it was a university gathering. So from every university, they choose to, they have chosen two person to go for a summit, the highest summit in Iran, like something like a nomadic action for universities. And it was uh, almost at the same time, which I was leaving kickboxing, a little bit like um, a parallel. And in this summit, I found out that climbing exists, rock climbing by itself, because I could not do the summit. But uh, from these people, which we were doing the summit together, I, they explained me about rock climbing. And that was the turning point which I went rock climbing. A lot of people in the West often think of Iran as a desert landscape. Maybe that's wrapped up in the images we see of the Middle East in the media. But geographically, Iran is a very diverse place. Yes, there are deserts, but there are also lush parts and big mountains. Mount Damavan rises 18,000 feet. That's a big peak. This is climber in front of the show, Kate Rutherford. All the old 
big climbing expeditions from Europe would drive through those mountains to get to the Karakoram and the Himalaya. So, you know, I think there's been a ton of exploration in those mountains over the years. But There's big walls, limestone and sandstone. And in the winter, there's even skiing and snowboarding. There's a huge mountain culture in Iran. Everybody in the city is like hiking in the mountains and there's like a huge outdoor industry there. There's all these special tunics and head coverings for women that are made out of breathable, you know, quick dry, super tech materials and just throngs of people hiking up to the top of these mountains um, and then climbers all along the side. Five years ago, Kate and a group of other women became some of the few American climbers that have visited Iran recently. Getting there is no small trick. America and Iran are deeply at odds with one another. In 1979, after the overthrow of the Shah, Americans from the embassy were taken hostage and held for two years. Iran was the most heavily sanctioned country in the world up until last year when Russia took its place after the invasion of Ukraine. We all know, though, that there is a difference between a government and its people. Kate witnessed that firsthand. When they arrived, they were assigned a government guide. He was also a climber. And through him, they were able to tap into the local climbing scene. So many of the women we met were really educated, you know, like writers and professors and nurses. And that wasn't surprising, but they were so well-spoken in English and so keen to hear about where we were from and what we were doing really friendly and welcoming. And I mean, that was the biggest piece that made the whole thing totally worth going over there. Like the welcome we felt from the whole community across the entire country is such a contrast to the policy and politics and war kind of vibes that you get through media and uh, government and that's really what I took home was like, these people are just like us. They're so, you know, kind and generous and the governments don't really express that. Kate and her team were able to visit private gyms in the basements of Tehran, homes where men and women could climb together, something that isn't allowed in public gyms where men go at one time during the day and women at another. They kicked our butts basically on all their problems that they had all dialed. It was classic, um, but it was great. So that was really neat to see that like in these kind of underground homes, basically, they were able to be more of just sort of what we would expect as a normal climbing community. Kate and her crew were able to spend 10 days at the 15,000 foot Alum Ku base camp and climb on the mountain. Kate felt that the base camp was pretty similar to Yosemite's Camp 4. And now more distant from the city and the police, social norms relaxed. When bad weather rolled in, Kate and the team decided to head down out of the mountains early in the hopes of visiting another climbing spot. Almost immediately, that deviation from an itinerary triggered red flags. Like as soon as we came out of the mountains and as soon as we changed our plans, we were kind of under house arrest and not able to leave the hotel in Tehran at all. And it felt scary at one point. Like, Brittany is an amazing traveler. You know, she's been all over the world. She's not afraid to ask for what she wants. She's talking about Brittany Griffith, one of the other team members, who's one of the most experienced exploratory climbers on the planet. You know, she always has a great plan and, you know, oh, 
you know, if we could just do this, this and this, then we could get over here and we'll surely be able to convince them of that. And she was pushing really hard to get us basically into this next climbing area. And at one point I got scared. I was like, Brittany, I think we need to stop asking for what we want because we're going to like get thrown in jail. Like, I don't, I think there's a fine line here that we are walking and by being demanding, we are not safe anymore, you know, and it was hard to feel like that. You know, I think I've lived a really wonderful life of privilege and don't get scared like that very often, but I was a little scared over there for sure. It was just the slightest glimpse into what it might be like to be an Iranian climber. We'll be back with more after the break. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-pitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Koros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. I was... I've been chosen for to go for international competition for kickboxing. To go... For international um, competition outside Iran, there will be camera people, filmmakers, like, you know, there will be um, public audience. It was the mid-aughts, and Nassim was in her early 20s. Nassim had been a national champion 10 years running. She had a choice. Rise to the next level of her sport and tacitly endorse the Islamic Republic of Iran by adhering to their rules, or walk away from the sport she had given her life to. So we had to cover long dresses and to go and present Islamic Republic because, you know, we have to go under this flag. And that was the point which I said, I will never do that. And I stopped kickboxing. So it was almost at the same time. How hard was it for you to decide? I mean, with, with the enormous social and cultural pressure and like the expectation that you will perform with coverings like that, I mean, how hard was it to to say no? Uh, you know, I was a national champion. I was really getting bored of just winning every time because, of, of course, uh, kickboxing was new in that time, <laughs> that period. And does it ever get boring to win all the time? It is very boring, actually, because to if you I don't know for um probably different type of uh, personality, but if I don't have, uh, I think it's like climbing. It get boring if you just climb easy routes, no? 
So you always want something to be challenging, you know, something which you lose and then you try to. So imagine if you just climb easy routes all the time, it's just for fun. There is no uh, motivation to train more, to be faster. And uh, in kickboxing was a new sport at that time. There were a lot of uh, people, but not so many also girls. So I also had uh, a lot of fight with boys because in the same weight, uh, with boys was uh, totally okay. I was enough strong to be and I was fast enough, very motivated. But from when I was born or walk, I could never accept a force above me. I wanted to do something which I want. If I didn't want to do something and they forced me to do, even if they're rewarding me or all anything else, I didn't want it. That's a, that's a, it's a very difficult personality to be born into an authoritarian government. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're born anti-authority, it's uh, difficult. When you're born into a full-on authoritarian state. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. So it was uh, really difficult for me to say I I love this sport. It was my life, you know, like for 15 years, and I was really, um, you know, I was aware of all aspects and was very um, difficult to say goodbye to my boxing gloves but uh, to lose myself my personality was more difficult climbing fell into my life and it was outside and I fell in love with out with climbing because it was outdoor climbing and I felt ah this is an area which uh, we are not dependent on opening hours of the a sport complex or, um, you know, like men and women have to go in a separate timing in all the sport complex anyway. But outside you you could just go whenever. It was depends on your partner, your group. And that was a very bigger world for a sport. And I found it very fascinating. And being in the nature was just a complete, like it was just cherry on the cake. And how old were you when you found climbing? I was 23. And yeah, it was a very, was a kind of time that I was a little bit independent because of my income. I could work partly and this made me really more independent, but still uh, going home late was a problem. Being with other boys was a problem also from the family, also from the society. Uh, being arrested with other boys and the climbing crack and then they called to my family was a disaster and uh, <laughs> all this uh, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about what uh what the day-to-day like w- what it means to be a climber in iran because i think uh for people listening we have a good sense of what it means to be a climber in the u.s you know it's like you can go to a gym you can hang out with your friends you can you know and there are different groups of climbers that do different types of climbing and things like that but you know what does it mean to be a climber in Iran? Going to going for outdoor climbing in, around Tehran because Tehran is based on the like mountain called Tochal, and there are some rocks around. But it's one hour and a half um, minimum driving to a very good crag, and you can learn everything there from face to overhang to crack. It's a very uh, privileged crack <laughs> in Iran. And um, to go, the first level is to convince the family because a lot of families, they don't want their girls go anywhere without them. Uh, 
only at university or work or the husband house. And so the first thing is to um, convince your family or have enough power to fight all the time and go come back, fight, <laughs> go come back, fight. And so did, did you did you fight or convince? Fight. <laughs> <laughs> as, as a 15 year kickboxer, there's really only one way, right? <laughs> you just have to fight. Even now, my family, of course, they are. I am not living with them from a long time ago, even when I was in Iran. But even now, they don't understand why I climb. So never come with me. Uh, and they fight. So then when you go to the street, uh, you have this morality police, which if you little mm, bit colorful or if you don't dress really well, you get arrested. The guidance police, or morality police, is a sector or squad in Iran that enforces Sharia law. They've been around in one shape or form since the 1979 revolution when the Shah was removed from power and replaced by the Islamic Republic and the Ayatollah. Essentially, the morality police govern the populace's behavior, most notably that women correctly wear the hijab, but everything from how hair is cut and worn to clothing and male and female interactions in public fall under their jurisdiction. So you can get arrested on the way to arrive at the crack or gym. And then when you are at the crack, then there are some conservative people at the crack, which are climbers, and then they are starting to pressure you. If you are with a boyfriend or with your husband, it's a different situation. And if you are always alone, there, or you just climb with random people, it's possible. Not all the boys and men are uh, having the, a conservative attitude. A lot of them are very open-minded. But this society is uh, is making um, the situation that even if they're open-minded, they're afraid to get close to you if you are very open. When did you have the first opportunity to travel outside of Iran? Like, when did you get to see for the first time that conditions in the rest of the world were very different? I was about 25. Uh, I went to United Arab Emirates because I had, a, um, I had a lecture, which was doing some work there. So I went to help him. Then when I was there, somebody asked me if I have a coaching certificate, which I had for rock climbing. And I was, uh, I became a climbing instructor in uh, Dubai. Hmm. So then it was the stuff in being outside. So it was not the best country to go as an outdoor climber, but it was just outside Iran and I wanted to see other people I could see. It was for me, was a really um, <laughs> something which was, uh, you think you rebirth again. Um, like when you are in Iran, for example, the situation with homosexuals, uh, you feel this is correct, what they do. I mean, they shouldn't be together. Like, this is what you learn in Iran. Nassim's referencing the fact that same-sex relationships are punishable by death in Iran. While violence against LGBTQ communities certainly happens in other countries, Iran is currently the only country on the planet that enacts this policy. This first trip away from Iran was an eye-opening experience for Nassim. When you come out, you see... Uh, people live in peace with each other. Nobody killed them because they are homosexual or trans. And they, these are the really small things which they, maybe they don't affect my life. But 
it affects my brain to see why in Iran they kill people without any reason and outside, no. And how much women are um, getting respect outside Iran and inside Iran, they are just, um, that their duty is just to make children and feed the husband. And so, you know, when you see this, then you understand that you are getting cheated and you were brainwashed. So for me, covering myself um, was something very stupid. So I was always without head scarf. And that was also a lot of girls was com- were coming to me and saying, maybe you put something on your hair is better. Oh, mm, these people are talking behind you. And I was like, no, I don't care. If they want me, if they want to call me a whore, I'm fine. I want to climb how I like. And that was how I started and how I moved in the climbing community. I became deaf and let them to say anything they wanted, but I wanted to do what I want. But were you not worried about getting arrested? We always have this in the back of our mind. And I've been also arrested several times, even at the crack. And, and so what, what happens when you get arrested by the morality police? So like the minimum is like you get arrested and you get a lot of insulting words into your face because you are uh, fighting against God. Because these are the words of the God which ra- rules the country. And if you don't obey these rules, you are fighting with the God. And this is the problem uh, which they can always give you the highest fine or highest punishment. So this is the situation. So even when we were at the crack, sometimes this happened that the police came up and stopped. Everybody stopped climbing. You cannot climb separate, you go down. You cannot cover your hair, you go home. And they expected us to put a curtain between the crack. So half of us women climbing the left side of the crack and men climbing. And it's just like, wow. So the lucky point is for us was always when we go to the climbing crack, most of the crags are, you need to walk the beginning, like maybe 20 minutes in this steep trail. And our police is not uh, very fit it's, in general. Same, same in the U.S. Yeah. So this is um, this was uh, the situation that it avoid them to come up all the time. But sometime they came up and really destroyed our day. And um, sometimes they arrest everybody. Sometimes just one. It's not a, a sport which you can do easily. I mean, also other sport, any outdoor sport is a difficult thing to do in Iran. When you say they would arrest everybody, they would arrest the men as well for climbing with women? Yes, <laughs> they arrest them and they give them a fine. They will give the fine to the man or to the husband Some also. Why don't you stop your woman of uh, fighting against God? Nassim quickly made a name for herself in the climbing community. People took notice of the passion for it, and she had raw talent and a tenacity to climb bigger and harder projects. Nassim's tick list grew quickly, but she needed new terrain to grow, so she started to bolt new routes, putting up first ascents and first female ascents on hard sport, trad, and alpine lines all over Iran and other countries, including Turkey, Georgia, Armenia, India, and across Europe. She climbed 514, and her growing resume drew in sponsors like Rab and DMM. They also caught the attention of Western filmmakers. And, and when did you uh, 
produced the the film that you made, Climbing Iran? I was still living in Iran. Then um, this one woman, I mean, there were several people who were interested to make the movie. And I always said no to all of them. I brought excuses. And uh, I didn't want because I was really in the shadow. In Iran, I stayed in the shadow of the mountain and uh, climbed for myself. And uh, the movie would bring me out of the shadow. The film screened as part of the European Outdoor Film Tour, Europe's equivalent of the Banff Mountain Film Tour, and reached hundreds of thousands of people. Back at home, the fact that Nassim was part of a documentary critical of the government would not go unnoticed. The problem is when you are picture your face is publishing as a public figure in Iran, then um, when they know you, then the way I was dressing with I climbed with bikini or tops or without um, any scarf on my hair. Um, this became really big problem. So I said no to every um, everybody who come close to me to film. I said no, unless this woman, Italian woman, who really he was he was not also a climber, and that was a double um, excuse for me. Not an excuse. It was just obviously the obvious that. No, you don't know anything about climbing. How can I explain you about the grades, grading system, the difference between bouldering and track climbing? So it was a no for me. But she went, she studied, she came back. She tried two years to convince me that she will never uh, do anything which put my life in danger. And so anyway, we started together to make this movie. When she edited the movie, I the whole movie finished, I said no. You cannot publish this because it was too dangerous for me. And then they changed the edit because then I could, if in case I would be arrested, I would say I didn't know. I didn't say anything against um, Iran or the regime. So they made this outside Iran and it's not in my hand. So she, to protect me, she changed the whole edit once more, like a lot of effort. When you made the film Climbing Iran, were you still expecting to live in Iran? Because now you're living in Italy, basically as a as an asylum seeker. You know, I mean, did you know that you were going to leave Iran anyway? Because if you knew that you were going to leave, why not just be public and vocal about uh, criticizing the regime? Yes, but I didn't want to leave because I was thinking I'm so useful in Iran. I can bring information from outside. I can empower other girls in Iran, which they have the same difficulties as me, because I really, it was difficult for me to get to the point uh, to empower myself. And now I had this power to give up to other girls. And I found it a very, um, you know, a very good work for me to, to start even one girl, empower one girl was very valuable for me. Um, so I didn't want to leave Iran. We'll be back with more after the break. Element is a zero sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. 
So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. For eight consecutive nights, people in Tehran have defied authorities to protest over the death of Massa Amini. Human rights groups say at least 50 people have been killed during the unrest. The 22-year-old died in custody last week after being arrested by so-called morality police. Protesters bravely staring down security forces, chasing away a riot police van. Women defiantly taking off their head coverings, breaking Islamic law. Some going further, burning their hijabs in protest, even cutting their hair. Security forces brutally cracking down, pushing back hundreds of protesters. With the protests in Iran show no signs of slowing down, they are spreading across the country. Tehran has limited internet services to clamp down on the growing dissent. I was coming out to climb in, in the Alps, and when the revolution happened, I was still outside. So I started to speak up about what is happening in Iran, and then this became dangerous, and it brought also the movie into, you know, like then I had the movie and me, which I was talking like an activist. So together became very strong. And in this moment also, they started to arrest every uh, director, every musician, every uh, actor. The arrest of protesters spilled into Iran's outdoor community as well. Prominent athletes and climbers were arrested for speaking out. Now, there's been concern over the whereabouts of an Iranian athlete who competed internationally without covering her hair. Elnaz Rakabi took part in a climbing competition in South Korea, and videos of her climbing without a headscarf went viral. Sources have told the BBC her phone and passport had been confiscated and that her whereabouts were unknown. Iran now says she's on her way home and has strongly denied what it calls fake news. Nassim was in France, watching fellow Iranians pour into the streets, thinking about home, considering her next steps. And I was sure as soon as I enter uh, the airport, there, there is no way out. I will be directly into the prison. So I had to think about what can I do? I, I, I had just a luggage with me, my boyfriend, just the luggage of climbing stuff. And now we had to decide what to do. And that was a very difficult moment. But anyway, then I was thinking if I want to be useful is wrong idea to go back because then I will go directly into prison. But now that I can stay and talk for Iranian people and talk for freedom, and I started to talk because before I never talked for human rights and freedom, but now I started and I found it that my platform will help me. I can do this awareness in the climbing community. When when you come to the West now that you live in Italy, what do you think are the misconceptions in the West about Iran? Do you know what I mean? Like, like what do you think that uh, that people in Europe or the U.S. don't understand about the situation in Iran? 
you know, from the time, especially um, from this revolution, I get some messages which it absolutely shows this misconception and misunderstanding. Uh, people ask me where we can donate money to support Iranian women. And I'm like, Iranian woman doesn't need money. You know, the Western people, I saw US, I saw Europe, they think people who live in countries without freedom, they need money. That's the only thing they feel. They feel with some donation, the problem is solved. But it's not because the, pro the problem is not the money. So I always send them the message back is like, they don't need money. They need uh, that you make awareness around yourself. So what, what should climbers or, or people in the West do to support women in Iran? In my opinion, climbing communities, magazines, the climbers, they, they just have to climb, of course. They have to do what they love to do. But also talk about something else. Global warming is a problem, but not the only one. You know, um, I dropped one of my sponsors because they didn't want to talk about uh, women in Iran. So I asked my sponsor. Which which one? I had uh, Rav and him, and I when the revolution happened in Iran and I started to speak up, I asked both of them, and I said, as an ambassador, this is my voice, and I want to talk about this. I want an interview and an article. How you want, I don't know how mild or extreme you want to have it, but I want to, I don't want to just publish my timing 8A, 8B. I don't care. I also have this voice as an Iranian woman, as an ambassador. I want to talk about this. And um, like DMM totally refused. And they said, because uh, we don't want to upset some of our clients. Who is your client? Okay. Saudi Arabia, we start selling army equipment to them. So I asked them directly, I asked them, who are your clients? The fascists, who are they? Is, is the client who get upset if I talk about Iran, is a correct client for you? Nassim left DMM as an athlete, but kept pressing, speaking out in European newspapers and magazines. In a super savvy move, she used her climbing, her love for first ascents, to garner even more attention. And then I started a new project called When the Mountains Speak. And this is, uh, the idea came to me that I open a lot of line in Iran and also in other countries. So I decided to use my talent and my knowledge to open new lines, multi-page in different countries and put the name of a human rights or women rights movement on each of these routes. So the first one I did in France, uh, together with my boyfriend, Sina Heydari, and Michel Piola, which probably not. And as the first route, we called it Rise Up for Human Rights. The second one we opened in Dolomiti, with, uh, again, with my team, my boyfriend, and a mountain guide from the area, because that's why I like to respect the area together with a person, a local person. So Gianni Trepin called it Woman Life Freedom, a slogan of the revolution in Iran. And so I'm going to go on this project uh, forward and uh, this is what I can do. I use my climbing to raise awareness and move with myself 
the voice which we need to hear. I really like that idea. <laughs> I really like just naming roots. I mean, especially if you put up good roots and you name them after you know, prominent slogans or activists or individuals who, who lost their lives to the regime is a good way to remember yes. individuals as well. I mean, especially if you create good roots. Also, in everywhere in the world, world is very masculine. The lens of everything is masculine. So I can empower women here to, to feel they can change a lot of things around themselves. And this is a privilege to be able to talk, you know, like to be able to talk openly um, between other people. Because when I screen a movie in several countries when in Europe, and after when I make the talk, I get a lot of messages from people who said, with living in Europe, they still feel uh, very uh, closed. They feel very um, oppressed because their duty is to be beautiful or their duty is to be that. So I feel that this is, in, this is an international work that I can make. As if the scope of your challenge wasn't big enough. Now, uh, you know, you make it international. It's kind of like, I mean, I know exactly what you mean, that it's, uh, that it's obviously an issue that can be worked on globally. But it's like, it's already so much to just work on changing regime in Iran. When you think of it globally, does that make it feel easier or harder for you? I don't care if I can change something. I just have to move towards it's like climbing a route. For example, when I choose a project, it's not sure that I can finish that project in a in the time which I have, or maybe depend on the weather, or maybe I get injured, like my finger or something can get injured and I cannot finish this project. So we all have a lot of unfinished projects which we would like to go back to them. <laughs> um, I think this idea also is like a project um, no matter what happened, I just do the move. And this move just makes me stronger, just makes me keep going, makes me busy to feel um, I am a human, to feel that I'm stepping forward, not just the... Yeah, li living in the correct way. Exactly. But then what what is my uh, duty to do as a human, as a person? Maybe I cannot change the world, but I can do correct things. For example, if I see beside me, they are oppressing a um, black person or um, I don't know, everywhere this can happen or at work, if I see something is not correct, it's just my duty to talk about this. I wish everybody would do the same because if we all speak up, the world will be really much more beautiful. Maybe I never can change the system, which is very difficult. But it's just, I have to say, it, it cannot uh, stay in my, in my chest forever. I say it and we will see. Thank you, Nassim, for sharing your story with us. Nassim is currently living, working, and climbing in Italy under asylum. This fall, despite threats of violence from the government, Iranians returned to the streets on the anniversary of Masa Amini's death. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. 
Today's episode was produced and written by Marco Seiler Gonzalez and me, Fitzgo Hall. Additional editing and mixing and mastering by Evan Phillips. Music today by Marcus Huber, Joya, Our Many Stars, and Sunshapes, courtesy of Track Club. Our theme music is by Brendan O'Connell. Our social media and YouTube editor is Skylar Perwins, and our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RxR Sports, and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cajal for Duct Tape Than Beer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>